From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Earlier today, the federal housing minister was in Vancouver talking about a new fund that should help build new rental housing units in various locations throughout the city. Also on hand was Vancouver City Councillor and Deputy Mayor Pete Fry. And Pete Fry Fry joins us now to talk more about the announcement and what this means for housing in the city of Vancouver. Councillor, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Happy to be here. This was a big announcement earlier today. The federal housing minister in town talking about almost $500 million. This is for new rental housing units in the city of Vancouver. What, what is this announcement? This is one project out of nine projects uh, across Vancouver that the, uh, that the, the minister is sort of funding through the uh, Rental Housing Construction Financing Initiative. And it's, 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 a, welcome, uh, it's a welcome program because what, what I'm hearing from developers, and in fact, I was at another announcement uh, for one of these um, at uh, the River District. And what the developers are saying is that right now, given given uh, the challenges and the headwinds with interest rates, these low interest rate federal loans are, are making projects viable. And we know, you know, here in Vancouver, even in the last year, we've approved, uh, you know, thousands of, of, of units of housing and, and, and purpose-built rental, but they're not necessarily getting built because uh, we're hearing loud and clear that for, you know, like between interest rates and construction shortages and other supply chain issues, there's, there's just not the capacity to, to get shovels in the ground. So low-interest loans like this actually make a big difference in actually seeing the project uh, go from our approval to actually being built. And so how does that work then? So with the federal money, this is almost $500 million. So that money will then, will it be developers can apply for that funding before they go to council and apply for the permits? Or is it or is it the other way around? Or kind of how does that whole process work? Uh, my understanding is that there would be need to be some sort of letter of intent or some kind of clarity that this indeed is, is, is something that's likely that will be approved by council. So obviously, you know, nothing's 100% predictable that way, but that is sort of just that the, the, there would need to be some kind of preliminary approval. And that could be in, in, in typically in the form of like a, a rezoning that's passed. Because of course we have to run rezonings through public, public hearing process. So that does present a potential wrinkle that needs to be kind of anticipated uh, to kind of fulfill, I think, the, the requirements that this, this, funding uh, of this low interest loan is, is is viable for that project. All right. So, yeah, so a kind of, I guess, a bit of a, a bit of a, a kind of figuring out exactly what's needed. And then because uh, you could see a developer then really counting on that money or the federal money to go ahead with a project that they're getting the council approval. Yeah. Well, so, so on the heels of the, the, the announcement I was attending uh, a couple of weeks ago, did hear from a developer who's trying to get this funding but doesn't yet have the rezoning and hadn't submitted the application, so it's in a bit of a gray area. And that being a bit of anxiety, needing to get that city approval uh, in order to get that funding sort of commitment, and that's that's where we're, we're, we're trying to finesse it a little bit with uh, CMHC and, and ensuring them that, that there is a high likelihood that this will get approved, but recognizing that you know, there are there is sort of a queue, and there's other developers lined up as well. So, you know, from when the the project is submitted to when it's 
uh, referred to public hearing. It does take some time, and it does have to sort of honor the other people who are in the queue. So that is adding to a little bit of tension with uh, with getting lined up for these loans. So hopefully there's more to come as well. I understand that these uh, rental units as well, the funding that was announced today, these will be uh, rental units uh, that uh, that will be uh, built within walking distance to rapid transit stations. As you mentioned, the River District, uh, one at UBC with, I think it was 152 units. Uh, so is that one of the, the stipulations of this as well, that these are projects that specifically do need to be built near transit stations? Um, now, I would I would say that the River District is probably arguably not really that close to any any transit stations. In fact, it's kind of underserved by transit. But uh, yes, I think that is definitely a big piece of it is, is transit oriented development. All right. So, but the so but the River District is part of this was part of the earlier announcement, but is also linked to this, or is it was the same program? Same funding program. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Doesn't that seem so a bit it's, it's, strange though that it's not close to a rapid transit station? There's 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 a strong intention to uh, make it better access to rapid transit. Now, River District, ironically, is better served by uh, rapid transit to Metrotown than it is to anywhere in Vancouver. And I think that we all recognize that that's a problem and that we'd like to see TransLink expand transit service connecting it to the Canada line with the, with the River District. And there is some, but there needs to be more. And bearing in mind that River District... Uh, is a relatively new and pretty significant uh, development that's going to have to have that kind of infrastructure right. delivered to it. Um, the um, federal minister also said that these specific units, so units that are built under this program, this federal loan program, uh, will be tied to the median household income in the given city. So that would be Vancouver. Uh, and he said so that the extent, so if the prices are at risk of going up, those prices will only go up, the rents will only go up if wages in the city are going up as well. Uh, how do you enforce something like that? Sorry, sorry. Um, run that by me one more time. So the, the quote from, from Sean Fraser was that, so he said, each rental building will offer units at below market value in alignment with average salaries. So he said the units will be tied to the median household income in a given city. So if the, the prices, if the rents are going up, rents can only go up if the wages in that city are also going up, which, which sounds great, but it, it seems like a difficult one to enforce. Um. I would assume, and again, this is a federal program, but I would assume that it's a condition of the loan that, that they're meeting. So, so, I, and again, I, I can't honestly speak to how they would enforce it. It's a good question, and that would be probably one more for CMHC or Minister Fraser, but I would assume that there's some kind of condition of, in the loan that that's, that's the requirement for delivery. Uh, was there any timeline? We've, oh, we've done the same. We've done the same. Sorry, and uh, just to, to add that we've done similar with here in the city of Vancouver with the uh, the MERP project, where we would, you know, offer uh, waivers on on fees that developers have to pay for infrastructure, on the condition that twenty percent of the units are rented below market and and that the the rents are tied to the unit, not to the tenant. So we've done the same in the city of Vancouver. It's just a condition of the of the 
of the agreement. Uh, was there any timeline given as far as as moving forward with these loans? And like you said, you had talked to uh, a developer who was in the process or trying to get some of this money. Uh, I know the current council uh, that, that you're part of has, has made it a priority saying that things are going to be uh, uh, approved faster than they have been in the past. But is there any timeline that, that you know of as far as when these rental housing units will actually be built? Uh, well, the, the, I mean, the, the project at River District and the project at UBC that I was at today, both are well underway construction-wise. So these, these are projects that are being built, and, uh, and, and, and it's happening now. So okay. the, 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 I guess the timing of the delivery of the loan didn't necessarily um, force a delay in, in, in starting construction, and that's probably a question more for the developer on how they financed it sure. and how they bridged that financing. All right, and those are those are two of the nine projects, then. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the federal minister, I think, he also said too that, or he was quoted this week as saying that the federal government should never have gotten out of housing, should never have have, have gone away from financing, from being part of housing. Uh, does that is that promising? Do you think, or does that bring back some confidence that we'll see more of these types of programs and more involvement in getting more rental housing built? Yeah, it was it was a very refreshing and a, I think a positive development to hear Minister Fraser very clearly articulate that that it was a mistake for the feds to get out of the housing biz and and recognizing that there's been shortfalls in fundings for for decades now, and I think if you were to to look back to when that that the, the federal government got out of the housing business in the 1990s in particular, we saw uh, we've seen that sort of erosion of the sort of really the the, the housing social safety net that many Canadians took for granted. And we've seen it manifest in the increase in homelessness and precarious housing um, and, and, and rents that are just so disconnected from the average incomes for, you know, well, specifically Vancouverites, but I would say for a lot of Canadians increasingly, we're seeing that, that rents, market rents, just are disconnected from, from the reality of what incomes people are making in Canada. And I think that that's, that's, you know, a reflection of uh, that the market alone is not going to be able to solve our housing uh, needs in, in Canada. And, and, and at some point, uh, we will need that kind of intervention to ensure that all Canadians have a roof over their heads. Councillor Fry, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us to talk more about this today. Jill, my pleasure. It is Wednesday afternoon. Lots of travel news to get to with Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. And, you know, still top of mind is the situation in Maui. And I wanted to give um, an update to you and listeners because a lot has not changed, but there's been definitely some updates. And so um, it's going to be, I want to be very respectful of the situation there, but I also want to explain what is going on there because the people who um, are in the travel industry really need to rely on Hawaii and the tourism authority there in conjunction with the county mayor of, um, of Maui and the Hawaii governor. And that's where they're going to be taking their lead. So just yesterday afternoon and then again this morning, we've had an update and the update is that the the update will be non-essential travel to West Hawaii area. So 
that means that the area closed to visitors covers Lahaina and then west of that, Nepali, Kaanapali and Kapalua. Um, and that'll be in the weeks ahead. What they've said up until at least the end of August at the moment, um, but that other parts of the island travel is allowed. And so I, I know that there's a lot of people who are saying, what? Mm -hmm. um, so West Island is the area that I mentioned. And Kaanapali alone has massive resorts, Jill. So um, the Hyatt, there's Marriott's, a couple of them. There's the Whaler, Outrigger, Sheraton properties. Um, so, there, I mean, there's a ton, a ton of them. And so what they've done is they have carved out 500 hotel rooms that will be available for locals who have been displaced, an additional 500 hotel rooms that will be set aside for workers from FEMA. And then there will also be about, they've got about 1,400 Airbnbs that are secured for housing that will be available. And they've already had um, some people who have uh, accommodation as vacation homes put up their homes so they're working on that so um, the visitors in West uh, Maui have really largely heeded the call to leave the island um, because of the, the situation that the hotels and other accommodation are needed some of those hotels uh, remain without power and water um, and that is being worked on and um, the other update is that most of the major airlines with service to Kahului Airport have announced change fee waivers for customers to reschedule travel free of charge. Now, most of those are up to including the end of August. And the airlines and the tour operators um, that service Maui are going to follow the advice of the local representatives. So um, it, right now, uh, and it was actually, I, I kind of questioned this and I, I wanted to, it was see it myself. Um, from the, the conference, press conference that was held. And the um, Maui County Mayor, Richard Bison, actually said twice that, um, that visitors are still welcome in the southern and eastern parts of the island. And then he said it again, you know, that, um, that you know, it's, they should not go to West Island, but the rest of the island's open. And, and he, he said it twice. And then the Hawaii governor, Josh Green, said that the resorts and hotels that are staying open in other parts of Maui will help sustain jobs. And so it seems so. Oh, and I think we have lost Claire. We will try and reconnect with Claire and uh, get the latest on that. But as Claire was saying, that uh, is the message from officials in Hawaii, that not the parts that uh, have been devastated by fire, but other parts of the island. And as Claire was just saying, the uh, governor of Hawaii, Josh Green, saying that the resorts and the hotels, the ones in the other parts of Maui that aren't being used for emergency crews, for FEMA, for others who are there uh, dealing with the devastation from the fires, they are still relying on people coming and people spending their time there and uh, staying there in those resorts. So it might seem very strange that they are still saying that, yes, they need tourism, that people are still being encouraged to come, but that is the message from the governor and other officials. And I think we have reconnected with Claire. Claire, are, are you back with us? I'm back. I don't know at what point you, you lost me. Just, just as you were saying, and I kind of recapped it there, that it, it might seem very strange and feel strange to still be going to Maui to vacation. But if you are in those hotels that aren't being used for emergency workers and aren't on the part of the island devastated, that is actually what officials in Hawaii are saying people should do. 
Yeah, and so I would just suggest that um, if you have something booked after August the 31st, that you get in contact with the accommodation provider just to make sure everything is okay. And you may want to even consider checking an extra bag with essential relief supplies. Some airlines, I know for sure that American Airlines, and I think some Canadian carriers are, I'm just going to um, find out for sure, but they're waiving extra baggage fees until August the 31st. Oh, that's a great idea. All right. Good good to think of uh, that. And I'm sure people will be looking at that and looking what they need to change if they are, in fact, going to, to Maui anytime in the near future. Uh, let's talk about some other travel news. And it looks like people are, are prioritizing travel once again and getting back and, and taking those trips that maybe they had put on hold. You know, I, I'm always shocked because things are so expensive. Like I think of grocery and gas and all of the basics and travel is really pricey at the moment. But this was um, a survey that was done recently by Flight Hub of 2000 Canadians and that it found that travel is being prioritized over essential expenses, even groceries, Jill. Like mm. it's crazy. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's been a priority for people since the pandemic, I think people are not taking for granted the fact that they're able to travel to other parts of the world and they are prioritizing it. There definitely are changes. And I know in other surveys that I've read there and I see it, you know, it here just I mean, I work in the industry and people are are cutting back. Certainly, like maybe if they were five star, they're doing four star. If they were four, they're going three. If they were going for maybe 10 days, maybe they're doing seven and they may be going to places that they can find a little bit cheaper, keeping that bucket list going, but, you know, knocking off some of the places that are more affordable. But um, it's amazing to me. I've always read that people prioritize travel over their RRSPs. I have to admit, sometimes I do, too. <laughs> I mean, it just is. But um, it's it's really especially now, just given the, the, the cost of living um, to still see it. Yeah, it is for sure. Interesting, uh, interesting findings uh, in that survey. Uh, this is something we have talked about in the past. I'm always amazed uh, when people are rude or think that that's going to get them ahead when they're traveling. But this was a pilot and this pilot has gone viral. Yeah, it's so funny. And for anyone who wants to, you could just do a Google search American pilot um, giving lecture. It was on behavior. He basically had this pre-flight speech and he called out rude behavior and encouraged passengers to be nice to each other. And this this was a flight late July and it's re, it, it's seen over 5 million views when I last checked. It was basically saying be nice to each other, that you... Um, you know, you treat people the way you want to be treated. And that, I mean, he went even into so much detail as saying that, you know, the middle seat has permission to use both armrests. Um, he was really passionate about it. I mean, obviously, there has been a lot of unruly passengers um, that have been disrespectful, not only to each other, but to in-flight crews. And he was kind of sick of it. But I, I actually really liked it. I thought it was a, a good reminder to people that on every single flight, and uh, you can't be selfish or rude. <laughs> You're right. And you have been talking about the middle seat getting both armrests for ages, trying to get that message to people. Oh, yeah. And he went on to discuss something else that I thought, like, make sure you stow belongings in their proper places. Don't be rude or obnoxious to seatmates. Watch the videos or um, taking calls. Put in your headphones because nobody wants to hear your conversation. <laughs> be respectful. That was really the message. And um, I mean, it, it's a lot longer than that. But it's, you know, if you're a traveler and you want a little giggle, this it's kind of a, a giggle, but it's a, also a good reminder. 
It is indeed. Just before we get to deals, let's take another look away from flying, but cruising. A lot of people are getting back on those ships. Yeah, one thing, um, I don't think it was a big surprise because there were so many ships that were in over our last long weekend. There were eight cruise ships in the Port of Vancouver, and they were taking passengers from all around the world, all of the major tour lines. And during that weekend alone, that long weekend, they it was over the four days, uh, there were more than uh, 53,700 guests move through the Vancouver cruise ship terminal, which is unbelievable. And although um, Vancouver is really only halfway through the Alaska season, they're close to surpassing last year's total, which was 815,000 passengers. That is so good for the local economy. Um, so it's, and it's even an increase over the number, which was the highest Pre-COVID in 2019, we saw 1.1 million, and it's going to be estimating we're going to see 1.3 million this year. Hmm, That's a a lot of people getting back to cruising and, like you said, pumping a lot of money uh, into the economy. Uh, I know I said we were only going to do one more before deals, but I I just realized I did want to talk about this as well. Because for international travel, Air Transat bringing in some new offers, because these look like places as well that a lot of people would like to see, probably on a lot of bucket lists. Yeah, this is a. Um, I thought worth talking about. Um, Air Transat has has announced that they're going to be doing direct flights to Lima, Peru, and that's kind of a gateway to go and see that bucket list Machu Picchu. From there, you can also go on to do things like the Galapagos Islands that a lot of people want to knock off their bucket list. They're going to be doing it from Montreal and Toronto, and although you can connect to the, you can connect to those destinations. South America is expensive to go to. Sometimes we have to price it from Seattle. Um, most often you have to go um, through Toronto anywhere and then continue down to either Santiago, Chile or Buenos Aires, Argentina um, or connect again to get to Lima. So this just makes that destination a lot more accessible. The, they're going to be servicing this twice a week from December the 20th through until April the 24th from Toronto, and then once a week from uh, Montreal, uh, very, very similar dates. But this is good news if you've had South America on your bucket list. It is indeed. Uh, A lot of people, I'm sure, will take advantage of that. Let's get people traveling. What deals do you have for us today? Well, the first one I wanted to share was an all-inclusive that I think is a really great deal. So hurricane season, as you know, goes Um, in the Caribbean area from like about now right through to or actually a little bit earlier in July to they say the end of October to be safe. So the Riviera Maya on October 30th. So you really have that first week of November down there. Air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. By far the the cheapest I've seen since COVID hit. $5.99. The taxes are more. I I guess you probably (laughs) looked at that when I sent it to you. The taxes are six thirteen, and the price of tax does not change regardless of what the base price for air and that package to the seven night in the four star beachfront all inclusive, whatever that changes to from 10 grand to a hundred bucks. I mean, the tax won't change. So um, that is a really, really good buy if that date works for you. And part of it is because a lot of families and parents don't want to be down um, anywhere over Halloween because Mm. their kids are intact. So that's probably why that date is a little soft. The other one uh, trip that I really liked was, um, a Canada and New England cruise. It's 11 nights and there's tons of inclusions. It's leaving October the 2nd, which is a really nice time of the year to see the fall colors. 
the itinerary. Okay, first the itinerary is so good, and then I'll go to the inclusions. It's Quebec City, um, and then it continues doing a lot of um, of Eastern Canada. But some of the things that I think are great on that list, Charlottetown, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Halifax, Martha's Vineyard, which is so cool. You also get to see Boston, New York, Baltimore. Anyway, it's an 11-night cruise. It comes with open bar, so the beverage package, specialty dining, Wi-Fi, and a shore excursions credit. I thought this is a great price, $649. Hmm, yeah. The taxes are 450 to see that part of the world. I know not that many people have seen it, so it's um, kind of a cool, cool spot. That is uh, indeed. All right, lots of great deals. More, I know, on the website. Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Jill, sorry for the technical difficulty. Many Canadians, it appears, homeowners say they are finding themselves in uh, well in a position where they're seeing some unexpected increases when it comes to their monthly mortgage payments, that because of rate hikes when it comes to interest rates. And some people are regretting the mortgages they are currently in. Joining me to talk more about this is Joe White, President and CEO of the Real Estate and Mortgage Institute of Canada. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Great to be here. Well, this was a survey, again, asking Canadian homeowners uh, this idea of mortgage malaise. Uh, how many people are, are suffering that and what is that? Well, I think basically that means that they're regretting their current mortgage. They've um, Out of our survey of about 1,000 people, uh, 34.1% or about 340 people indicated that they regret having their current mortgage. And, you know, without a doubt, that's because of the uncertainty. And for those that are facing uh, renewals, that's not just uncertainty. That's the the shock, the payment shock, it's referred to as in the industry, of seeing their mortgage payments, uh, you know, not hyperbole, but skyrocket. Uh, but it seemed a bit, I guess it didn't, it seemed a bit strange that the, the, that that number was so high as far as people saying they kind of regret the mortgage they're in. But you also asked people if given the choice, they would have purchased a less expensive property. And not a, not a huge number said that they would. Oh, Joe, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that. I think I lost you. Oh, sorry. If you you can hear me now, though, I can. Yes. All right. I was just asking about the number of people. So a lot of people were also asked if they would have purchased a less expensive property, but only about thirty percent of the people you questioned actually said that they would. That's right, and and you know, there's a disconnect there between. I think what we found is the disconnect is between what they want to have and what they think they can afford. So at the end of the day, it it boils down to, yes, they're happy in the house that they have. They regret the mortgage or the financing they have on it, but they wouldn't have changed their minds in purchasing. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a dilemma there in in reading the the data. Uh, And I think that's representative of many Canadians. They are happy to be in the market, but they're confused as to, where things are going, and if they made the right move. 
Hmm. So, and I know you asked people as well about the current interest rates and and how if people kind of had an idea what would happen to their mortgage payment if the rates keep going up, if they have to renew. What did you find as far as people really following that closely, or if people knew those knew the answers to those questions? Shockingly, not a lot of people understand what they have, especially in regards to their mortgage rates. Uh, we asked a bit of a loaded question, and that was, if your interest rate uh, hit 5%, or if interest rates in Canada reached 5%, um, how would you feel? And most of them uh, didn't realize that rates had exceeded 5%. So I think, you know, again, that that issue of individuals who know that there's an issue, but they don't know quite exactly how it affects them and and what it is. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that most Canadians get their mortgages through the bank and, and, you know, banks are a a necessary evil or, or wonderful, depending on your um, outlook. But a lot of folks who get their mortgages through a bank aren't made aware of the risks involved, especially with variable rates. They're just happy to get the mortgage, and there's no real risk disclosure. And if I can expand on that, they have to give disclosure. But in a real sense, me telling you that interest rates may go up and that may affect your payment, and then really explaining that by giving a a real-life example are two different things. You know, and I think that's the problem. Unfortunately, consumers don't understand the type of real-world impact these types of interest rate moves have on them until it's too late. So they get into a property at a low interest rate. Unfortunately, we as Canadians tend to um, maximize our debt. We spend as much as we can to get the property we want. Uh, And, you know, the interest rates are cyclical. So over the past 30 years, you've seen this happen. The only surprise is when it happens. It's not a surprise or a shock that it's going to happen because it's cyclical, just like the real estate market. But when it does happen, people are unprepared for it. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here. And uh, we only have uh, about a minute left. Uh, Is the takeaway Mm -hmm. from this that that maybe people aren't getting the information they need to get or aren't searching for the information they need to have when going into a mortgage agreement? Absolutely. I think that's a a major point. Um, You know, one of the reasons that I think and we think at Remick that individuals should be using mortgage brokers is that mortgage brokers have a responsibility uh, from a regulatory standpoint to disclose potential risks associated with the mortgage that somebody is getting. Whereas financial institutions, they're lending their own money. They don't have those same obligations. It really is necessary to sit down with somebody and say, you know what, you've got a great deal here, but what happens if this, if these rates go up or if something else happens, how will you handle that? Or will you be prepared to handle that? And I think that's financial literacy and that's lacking. All right, Joe White, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
this could be a big deal when it comes to getting microplastics out of the oceans. And could plants be part of the solution? That is what scientists at the UBC Bioproducts Institute have been looking at. And joining me to talk more about this research is Dr. Orlando Rojas, professor and director of the UBC Bioproducts Institute. Dr. Rojas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be in your show. This is just, uh, it seems like such an interesting, interesting field of research and discovery that has been made at the Institute. So what have you found as far as that connection using plant compounds uh, to get microplastic out of the water? Yeah, it's a very simple solution. And uh, it's also a solution that uh, can be sourced in our forest in British, British Columbia. It relates to the use of uh, sawdust as well as a compound called tannins that uh, then when combined together and added in a filtration system are very effective in removing microparticles or microplastics from water. And how did you figure that out or, or come up, realize that by putting that combination together that worked as such a good filter? Well, the, the magic compound, uh, as I indicated earlier, is, is the tannin that we can find, for, for example, in the bark of uh, cedar, cedar trees. And, of course, in many, many plants, uh, and food plants, for example, and uh, berries and many other uh, sources. And this uh, tannin we have tested in many different experiments, realizing that it has a very high um, um, strength in binding different compounds. So using the tannins in water, we have found they can be effective in, re- in removing antibiotics uh, from uh, poultry farms and other operations. So using the same concept, the fact that the polyphenol, the tannin, has a very high binding ability, an ability to uh, trap compounds. We just tested this in the case of microplastics and it worked out. So essentially it's a universal generic uh, molecule that can be used for removal, for the removal of uh, different molecules, including uh, microparticles that are in the nano micron scale or, uh, as far as the size. Hmm. And, and has it been tested then as far as with the microplastics, with them being such small particles, has it been tested to see how much, what percentage that this could remove from water? Yes, this is a very interesting question because uh, there are many different types of microplastics. You can imagine different polymers that end up in our uh, water streams. They can be coming from polypropylene, uh, that is what is used, for instance, in making the face masks. They can come from uh, polyesters that, that is uh, found in the uh, textiles that we use. Uh, also coming from laundry operations and others. So they can be quite different in chemical composition, but also in the, in the size and in what we call the um, charges, the electrostatic charges. And what we found is that these uh, tannins are effective in binding all of those particles, regardless of uh, their nature. And, and so this is quite interesting. The removal or binding efficiency uh, it reaches uh, values up to 99.9% from water. So it's quite effective. Uh, we use this, of course, in controlled conditions, and it remains still for us to test this 
in uh, actual water systems. But so far, this is an experimental effort, and we have, uh, we have shown there a quite a good effectiveness of, of this uh, material. Yeah, I, I would say uh, going uh, anywhere from 95 to 99.9% of the plastic particles, that uh, sounds uh, amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. How much or how big of a, of a unit would have to be used then? And I, I, I get you're saying it hasn't been tested on a, in, a, in a, a scenario, say, in an ocean or in a large body of water. But do you have an idea on, on how big, how much would have to be done, how big the filters would have to be to, to make a big difference? Well, the, the challenge with microplastics is that they are in very low concentrations in water, so low that it's difficult to detect, right? So, and for the same reason, difficult to separate. So, uh, essentially, the solution that uh, is proposed is to use uh, filtration systems as the typical ones that are used uh, in, in water treatment. And these filtration systems can use membranes also as is used in filtration systems. These membranes are ba- based on typical uh, polymers um, and, and they are coated with these uh, tannins. And then these are the ones that can be effective in, remove, in the removal of uh, different components for water. In a second iteration, what we found was that absorbing the tannins on sawdust and putting the sawdust in a, uh, in a column, as a filtration column, has this ability to remove the particles. So the, the size is, or, or the volumetric flow or the amount that can be filtered, it depends on the size of the columns. So this is something that can be a scale up, it can be increased in size, and can then use uh, uh, water that can be flowed through the system, right? So pretty much it can be uh, deployed uh, in any system as is uh, regularly done in, in water treatment um, uh, approximations. And what are you thinking as far as uh, the cost in that uh, we know that a lot of the solutions so far that have been looked at for doing this, for getting that plastic debris out of the oceans can be very, very costly. It can be difficult to, to, to make it effective. How, how are things looking as far as the costs of doing this? Well, the, the first is the carrier or the substrate for the tannins, and that would be sawdust. So sawdust can be considered a side streams of uh, forest operations, right? So it's something that has a low value but can be used uh, for uh, purposes like uh, generating energy or for others. In this case, we are adding value to this uh, low-cost material, again, sawdust. And then the tannins is a molecule that can be extracted from bark. We have uh, some work uh, sponsored by the Ministry of Forests, where the main idea is to um, utilize residual bark. Bark currently is uh, is a residue in forest operations again, and they are used, or bark is used for um, energy generation, right? It's burned. So uh, I I think uh, rather than burning the bark, uh, extracting the bark to remove the tannins is uh, quite an uh, uh, interesting proposition. So cost-wise, I, I would say that, uh, of course, we need to figure this uh, in detail, but cost-wise, it looks actually pretty interesting because we're using two residual biomass materials that are underutilized. All right. Where does the research go from here? Well, uh, the main interest now is to uh, look into partnerships uh, with uh, companies that may be interested in putting this into systems in larger scale and also uh, designing the columns so that we can have a larger volumetric flow for larger treatment. 
And then, of course, that needs to go along with uh, an analysis of the techno-economic viability and other prospects, uh, including the environmental impact that should be quite positive. And, of course, uh, just the fact that the plastics are removed, the microplastics uh, are removed, this is a, a big gain, right? So, obviously, this is a very interesting proposition where almost, in a way, uh, cost is a, a, a minor factor in the sense that we are alleviating a problem that is really quite, quite challenging and ha- hasn't been uh, found to be easily uh, uh, solved by uh, current methods. Well, it is really interesting research and how you came up with it and are continuing to look at this and especially with the issue of microplastics in the waters. Dr. Roja, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for contacting us. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.